I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Praise youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and with me today are Neil Kulkarni. Hello there. And Simon Price. Hello, hello. Fucking hell, Jesus and Buzz are in the house, everyone. <laughs> you do sound like a very shaking Cheech and Chong. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> anyway, boys, lay some of that popping interesting stuff on this arse right here now, please. Well, um, finally, we can announce to the pop-crazed youngsters, relax, listeners, he's married. Because I got married. <laughs> Sorry, boys, he's married. <laughs> yeah, you may remember, uh, long-term listeners remember that um, I got engaged during lockdown one. Mm. And at that point, the date that we'd set, which was the 10th of April this year, seemed a long, mm-hmm. long way off. And we thought, oh, everything will be fine. The world will be back to normal by then. Yeah, yeah well, was it fuck, you know? So um, <laughs> the thing is, we've been th- through so many phases of kind of the tier system and sort of gradual unlocking and relocking that it's almost hard to remember what happened when. But yeah. um, April the 10th was in, in this weird little in-between phase where... Weddings were allowed um, for six people, mm. but you weren't allowed to... I mean, th- there weren't even any pubs open. Um, you couldn't have a reception or anything like that. Yeah. The venue had to be outdoors, which narrows it down considerably. Luckily for us, uh, we had booked the bandstand uh, on uh, Brighton Beach. Nice. Yeah, so that that sort of uh, made it fairly immune to some of the restrictions. Mm-hmm. It was just like every day we were sort of refreshing the, the BBC website to see what fucking new regulations they brought in and and also the weather because um if it rained the registrar wouldn't do it because their book gets wet you know literally (laughs) seriously that's it yeah you know because they've got this this precious book that's got everybody else's wedding signatures in it and they can't get have it getting pissed on you know so i downloaded every fucking app the met office and the bbc and uh, dark skies and all that kind of stuff all of which contradicted each other sort of i became absolutely obsessed with the weather from sort of like 14 (laughs) days out just counting down to it but um on the day it, it was it was fine. It was actually fucking freezing, but um, mm. it, it didn't rain. We were only allowed six people on the bandstand, but we kind of got around that with the help of the very kind people at um, Brighton Hove Council. So essentially what happened was separate groups of our friends and family in uh, groups of no no larger than six 
just happened to be walking along the promenade at, <laughs> oh, at the appointed right. hour. Nice. And they just happened to sort of dally and linger by the railings to watch what was going on. And then afterwards, um, down on the on, on the sort of beach bit itself, they just so happened to share some massive cooler boxes full of champagne that somebody had uh, oh, happily brought along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was all cool. We weren't being arseholes about it. We weren't breaking the rules. Maybe we were bending the rules slightly, but there were COVID marshals there and um, they were all cool with what, you know, what we were up to. The maddest thing was um, Janie's mum, my wife, Janie's mum, brought a fucking really loud, powerful PA speaker on a trolley. <laughs> because she's one of these people who's really extra about everything, um, which sometimes works out for the best, you know. Mm. So she brought it along, mainly so, so that we could have music playing when the bride walks in and walks out and when we're signing the register and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so we could do our speeches. We actually set it up down on the beach um, so we could sort of do some speeches. We weren't being noise nuisances, partly because it was too cold for their to be anyone to nuisance <laughs> and um we had a first dance which really felt like a bit of a moment because yeah. uh, it was my girl by the temptations uh, and first of all it's just me and Janie. a song mm-hmm. means quite a lot to us because when we went to studio a in detroit in uh, hitsville usa that's the song that they get you singing yes. in the actual studio on the mm-hmm. tour and um on that holiday Janie got i got sunshine on a cloudy day tattooed on her arm so it, it's got meaning for us so we danced to it but then you know after verse one or chorus one or whatever Everyone else who'd come down to see us joined in, and it was the first time that anyone had done any kind of dancing to amplified music wow. for months and months, and it just felt like a real... Oh, the first fraught. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a spine-tingling moment. I know I'm biased, it's my wedding, and I'm, I'm obviously going to feel sentimental about that. But mm. just to see all my friends, everyone smiling and having a sing, and yeah. and then, then after that, um, I stuck on a Spotify playlist that I made earlier called all night long 80s groove um nice that's, that's all night long the mary jane uh, girls by the way not um lionel richie of course and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah just having a little dance on the beach obviously distanced and all that correctly but um to you know loves in control finger on the trigger by donna summers the one that i really remember and mm. let the music play by shannon and single life by cameo ironically and uh, <laughs> and stuff like that so yeah we had to make the decision to sort of separate the wedding ceremony from a reception we couldn't have a reception yeah. uh, we'll be having a big party later in the year when if and when they're calling it freedom day aren't they in the in the oh, press uh. and uh, like if if that ever actually comes i'm kind of skeptical about it but did a seagull nick your cake <laughs> the whole fucking cake in its beef the maddest thing that happened was um there was this guy he's one of the sort of um seafront i don't know what they call them just sort of like not exactly a lifeguard but these guys are sort of patrol up and down the beach in their mm. sort of council uniforms he had this quad bike and he suddenly comes it's in the middle of like my my mother-in-law doing a speech this this quad bike <laughs> this guy in it suddenly comes past with you know those um inflatable uh resusciani dolls to teach you how to resuscitate oh, yeah. people yeah. with one of those just sat on the back like sort of spread eagled and it was just i mean what, what a way to have your speech up stage it's kind of amazing oh well congratulations simon <laughs> on behalf of the whole pop craze universe yeah bless you all oh i saw that the and, photos were so magical man I mean, you know, oh, it, it's, it is a difficult thing this stuff but um not yeah. getting married i mean in the midst of lockdown but it looked like a beautiful yeah. day if it had come like three days later we could have all gone at least to an outdoor you know to a beer garden of a pub mm-hmm. but there wasn't mm. even that option but 
Um, obviously, we couldn't go on honeymoon, so we had what we called a homey moon, which was basically just we went on a <laughs> bit of a, a week long rampage around Brighton, um, sitting outside various favourite pubs and restaurants. But it was fucking freezing, and we mm. just we did that British thing of putting a brave face on it. So like of everywhere course. we went, we took a bag for life with blankets, hot water bottles, <laughs> and these magical stick on heat pads that you know you put them on your skin, and somehow there's some kind of chemical reaction happens and it heats you up. So we we sat outside having lovely. Italian meals and stuff like that, trying not to shiver. Yes, this is lovely, isn't it? <laughs> chatter, 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 you know. <laughs> it does feel like, I'm not. of course, nothing will ever be the same again. We're not going to return to no. normal as such. But it has been nice thinking about what Simon was just saying. Getting back to pubs. And, yeah. and actually, the thing that I missed the most and that I've really enjoyed in recent weeks was sitting in a pub. I'm not an anti-masker, but it was nice sitting with friends without a mask on. But more importantly, doing something I've not done, I mean, probably well before COVID, going to the bar, getting a tenner changed into quid coins and pumping the jukebox and playing it. Oh, it's such a good feeling. And (laughs) so, you know, that that thing that nature is healing, it does feel like it's coming back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. What'd you put on? Oh, man. It's really good jukebox. And I kind of yeah. resent modern jukeboxes for the dazzling kind of panoply of choice they offer you. Because yeah. I think part of the joy of jukeboxes is finding the good shit in amidst yes. loads of terrible stuff, you know. Um, I remember one of my favourite pubs growing up, you know, it had a load of crap on it, but also do the Strand by Roxy Music on it. And that was the tune you went for, right. you know. Um, yes. Yes. Whereas now they just kind of give you everything you want. Mm. Yeah. I was in a bit of a glam rock mode that night. So it was all New York Dolls and Sparks and Roxy and Bowie. A bit of ACDC as well. But just being able to do that and being able to bother other people with what I wanted to listen to was just Mm. a really, really nice feeling. Yeah. Because my teaching, which was previously bossing my week, has entirely dropped off now, I find myself at the moment kind of sort of remembering I'm a human being and not just a walking schedule, which means kind of boredom, which is great, as well as the kind of anger that's engendered by social media, um, you know, 10 minutes on Twitter and you're going to be furious, aren't you? So that kind of dangerous combination I've inevitably been writing about a few things just off my own bat really mm. not commissions and after an article I posted a few weeks back re-overrated albums yeah. I encountered a little of what Pricey encountered last time we, we were all together um, oh. when uh, talking about his tweet about Oasis <laughs> I cobbled together a few old Facebook posts about overrated albums of a morning, posted them as a medium story about the 10 most overrated albums ever, posted it, fucked off. And then I came back to it, not a a comparable shitstorm to the one that Simon got, but it was, I was particularly delighted that it was shared among various indie rock um, social media groups like Radio 6 and just how much it pissed people off. Um, Did anybody so tell you I, that you're just an old man trying to make a name for oh, himself? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> Stay relevant, cool corner. Nah, this is it. Yeah, it was all that. It was all, um, you know, oh, this is a very angry man, desperately wants to be cool. He listens to bands <laughs> you've never heard of. Um, I mean, I sort of prefer the people who just come out and just say, what a cunt. You know, <laughs> yeah. just this is an atrocious piece of writing. But yeah, there was a lot of... That I mean, it, it it's weird because you know, if somebody calls me a silly man or my writing style's painful or just calls me an absolute cunt, I can kind of deal with it. What's shocking to me is the shock that people have. I know we talked about this last time, but the shock that people have mm. and how unprepared for kind of piss takey writing 
um, you know, music fans aren't. I mean, we were all raised on it with the music press. Um, but I mean, you know, I remember Simon Reynolds hiring me, Pricey, and Taylor to write for Spin magazine yeah, way back when, yeah. and American readers just being incapable of coping with it, even the mildest kind of piss taking about serious bands. Yeah, I think that habit's kind of you know sunk in here too, and it's really dangerous. Yeah, it gets worse, doesn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. it's like, I remember when I used to read The Enemy and that in the early 80s and people like Bieber Kopf mm. used to slag off the jam and I fucking hated him mm. and I refused to read anything by him <laughs> because he didn't like the music I liked. Yeah, yeah. And that's fucking thick. I grew out of that pretty quickly. <laughs> well, I mean, part of me, when I start arguing about this stuff with these people, part of me thinks we're just talking different languages now, you know. Um, it's yeah. dangerous for me, this idea that the job of critique is just to cheerlead, yeah. you know. And so when you write anything critical, somebody has to ask you, you know, why are you so angry? Yeah. You know, really revealing their own kind of infantile, infuriated incapability of reading opinions that they disagree yeah. with. And you also get dismissed as well as writing for clicks, trying to make a name for yourself. But if critique is doing little more than conferring approval of choices and helping with filing and confirming the canon or regurgitating or, you know, sort of PR or lubricating commerce, it's a pretty shit lookout. And the idea that anything other than cultural cheerleading, I mean, another thing I've been called is edgelord. <laughs> you know because you're an edgelord you're attention seeking yeah. it's an incredibly dangerous idea that, that that you know if you apply the same logic to non yeah sort of music journalism if you like non-cultural journalism and see how that works oh you're criticizing the government you know you've got a problem yeah what was gratifying about all of this is that whenever i read anyone calling me a cunt or saying you know you're an old mm. man or, or any of that <laughs> i would consider it a dereliction of duty really if i didn't fucking annoy these people <laughs> what what annoyed me the most was being compared to that racist, transphobic bitch, Julie Birchall. Yeah. Um, oh, really? Oh, God. I'm not having that, man. <laughs> no. She's a fucking attract... I mean, as has been revealed, Al, whenever you've read out Birchall reviews or Parsons reviews um, from Old mm. Enemies, they were two of the worst music writers ever. Yeah. And what's been gratifying, actually, whenever I've posted about Birchall, actually, is hearing people who were there, like, you know, John Savage, tell me that he, he ate them from the off. And, you know, Caroline mm. Coon and writers that I do respect from the enemy of that period hated them from the off as well. So, yeah, oh, yeah. not exactly pop and interesting, but mainly I've been winding up precisely the people I've been wanting to wind up. I suspect this will increasingly happen over summer. I have very little else to do. <laughs> Music journalism nowadays is essentially applauding people for reaching a standard. Yeah. Yeah, it's like saying you know if uh, I don't know if England get absolutely fucking battered <laughs> in the Euros, we're supposed to applaud them anyway for the proficiency of their yeah for the getting effort. hammered. At least they're trying. Fucking thick. I mean, yeah, these people are just fucking thick. They're not used to music writing like that. But more importantly, I just think that the the line between PR and journalism has been blurred for so long now mm. that it's a category error. It's the same reason that young PRs ask me for copy approval. They just don't understand yeah, the process. And to them, yeah. these things are equivalent. So, you know, the, part of me gets really furious about this stuff. Part of me just thinks we're talking different languages. Yeah. There's a whole generation of people who just cannot understand critique or, or, or anything being criticised, basically because for years and years and years now, and this is something I spotted even in the magazines that I write for, you know, editors don't send you stuff that they think you're going to slag off. 
They mm. put writers together with albums that they'll like yeah. because nobody wants to piss off the PR man. Nobody wants to piss off the record company or in any way no. imperil that relationship. So consequently, yeah. you know, there's going to be less and less true criticism being printed. And every time you do print anything or publish anything, self-publish anything, you're going to get this. Oh, you know, what are you doing? This is not the point. of It blows their minds. It just doesn't compute, does it? Mm. They, they don't know what the fuck you're doing. It is, yeah. And, and it staggers me because the, the reaction, I mean, as, as Pricey was saying about the Oasis tweet that he did, I mean, fucking hell, they need to listen to chart music, don't yes. they? Because, yeah, this stuff is still happening, but these people are massively untutored in it. Mm. Uh, whereas all of us, of course, are raised on this kind of stuff. I went to the pub for the first time this week, and um, yeah, it was fucking men. Mm-hmm. I was asked at very short notice to do a pub quiz at one of my regular places. Mm-hmm. I was more than happy to do that, and even more than happy to um, get loads of free drink, dummy neck. It was fucking nice. amazing. Really <laughs> enjoyed it. Pulled out all the stops. I did the picture round. One of my favourites is uh, name name the title of the gay porn DVD. Yeah, yeah. Where I blank out some words with asterisks and you're invited to fill in the blanks. I fucking love that round. There's a table full of brick shithouses earnestly discussing what the sexual practice is. Amazing. There was one bloke who just suddenly turned round to his mate and shouted, it's smash my my fucking hole, okay. <laughs> so yeah, I like that. I feel I'm I'm achieving something in life when I've done that. These drinks, right, that you're having in the pub, were they bought to you? Did did, did you just sit there and, and these drinks? I were sat bought at to the you? bar it... and um, they. Ah, see. Yeah, it was all table service and that, but yeah, because you know table service. I I know it's a pain in the ass for bar staff, but I quite like it. I'm not sure yeah. I'm missing much. The standing at the bar with loads of people waiting. No, if that doesn't come back, I'm not that fussed. Yeah, but yeah, sitting in a pub with a pint in your hand, it's just fucking glorious. Lovely. It's yeah. frightening, is it? Because I'm I'm very arsy about people banging on about fucking Freedom Day. Mm. I mean, as far as I can recall, Special AKA didn't sing Twenty One Years in Captivity. <laughs> Gagging for a pint in a carvery. <laughs> but I did get that, oh yeah, this is nice. Nature actually is healing a bit, and I'm getting absolutely fucking K lied. So, mm. yeah, yeah. Man, I feel rough as arseholes the oh, day after. Christ, man. And uh, still am now. Started smoking again like a twat because I've been a bit stressed out about a, a thing or two. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a bit throaty today, that's why. So don't worry about me. I ain't got COVID. Touch every single bit of wood in the house. Uh, it's kind of sexy, Al. Don't worry about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> got a big Sports Direct mug full of honey and lemon and ginger. There really should have been a lad rock band called Sports Direct mug. Yes. There's <laughs> <laughs> still time. Anyway, let us move on. And let us do as we always do at this time in the episode. Bowing the knee... And if you fucking boo me for doing this, you can fuck off. (laughs) To all the pop craze Patreons who've come and joined us this month. And this month, those people are in the $5 section. Jane Webber. Wang Chung Lung. Alex Bat. Michael Grogan. Tone. Philip. Ming Hawk. Paul Devlin. Connor Brennan. Gavin Hogg. John Rafferty, Emily Grant, Jim Clear, and Justin Doddsworth. Thank you, babies. Legends alive. Cheers. Thank you so much. And in the $3 section, we have Antne, Old Paul, Paul O'Donnell, Michael Avery, 
and Stephen May. Oh, and Darren Lamb, uh, you get a special sh sh shake of that arse for putting your donation up and beyond and over and away. Oh, lovely. Jochen And of course, one of the things that those pop craze Patreons got to do this month is tinker and a tanker and fiddle and a faddle with the latest chart music top ten. Shall we, boys? Yes, please. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to Barry the Sexy Lion, Christopher Lilliput, and Mario Cunt, which means one up, four down, two non-movers, and three new entries. No move at number 10 for Taylor Parks's 20 romantic moments. Down one place from number eight to number nine, it's CFAX Data Blast. Last week's number two dropped six places to number eight, Nolan Tentacle Porn. (laughs) A former number one now down four places to number seven, Jesus Price. (laughs) And down two places from number four to number six, I'm not even going to try and attempt it. Rock expert David David Stubbs. (laughs) Into the top five and up from seven to five is Bummer Dog. A new entry at number four. Here comes Jism. Whoa! Back. (laughs) Into the top three and straight in at number three, Tandoori Elephant. Oh, get in. The highest new entry this week, straight in at number two, Fox Biz, which means... Britain's number one. They're still there, riding high at the top of the chart music top ten, the bent cunts who aren't <laughs> fucking real. <laughs> oh, what a chart. What a chart. To be honest with you, I was expecting that to stay at number one, but I'm, I'm gladdened in the heart to hear that Here Comes Jism is back. Yeah. Back where it belongs, to be honest with you. I was shocked by it leaving the top ten. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the kind of ups and downs of these things. You know, had, has it somehow gone viral? You know, was Here Comes Jism used on, on a video game? Is it is it now a meme? You know, <laughs> has it been used yeah. in, a, in a Hollywood blockbuster in the last month or so? <laughs> uh, just to sort of push it back up there. Tandoori Elephant, though. Fucking yeah. hell. In with a bullet. Obvious early 70s rock behemoth. Yeah, <laughs> Australian, I think, with a touch of psychedelia about them, definitely. Yeah. yeah Heavy yeah, side. I think I used to play one of their tunes on Sitar Hero. <laughs> and, you know, it's about time that Fox Biz were admitted to the chart music top 10. It's been too yeah. long for mm, them. Mm. So if you've been holding back on us so far, pop craze youngsters, now is the time to support chart music. Get them fingers, throw them at your keyboard. Board, mash out patreon.com slash chart music and pad out this here g-string <laughs> just remember you make chart music what it is so it's all your fault <laughs> anyway this episode pop craze youngsters takes us all the way back to april the 7th 1983 and chaps i I don't know about you but after doing that seven hour behemoth on the 1983 christmas special last december Mm. my interest was peaked in 1983 and i was really up for reinvestigating what i'd previously seen as quite a fallow year for pop music yeah it's traditionally i mean including in chart music 
fantastic. 83 is seen as a slight falling off from the high points of 81 and 82. Yeah. Although that never quite matched up with my memories of 83, because I remembered 83 always being a great year for singles. I suspect 83 starts looking like a fall off when you think about albums. Mm. But um, as this episode proves, I think, it's a cracking year for singles. Yeah. Um, 83, it's not a bad year at all. Yeah, I believe that my snuffling about the crotch of 1983 has unearthed a particularly choice episode. I mean, spoiler alert, pop craze youngsters, if you've come here for some coat downs, uh, I think you're going to be massively disappointed because there's very <laughs> little in the way of cat shit in this one, is there? True. In fact, I would go as far to say that pound for pound, this might well be one of the best episodes of Top of the Pops we've ever covered. If not the best, fuck it, I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm going to put it out there. It's right up there. It's got a consistently high level, I would say. You know, not much filler. Mm. Yeah, it has got a high level. I mean, the question is, are the high points of 83 as good as the high points of 82 and 81? Mm. I'm not entirely convinced they are, but there's a couple of real fucking corkers in this episode. Yes. And there's no, for me, there's not a moment in this episode which I associate normally with Top of the Pops of, you know, where your soul just sinks (laughs) because something really awful comes on. I haven't quite got one of those moments with this episode. Right. No, and I just think in general, 83 is a year that feels kind of comfortable in its own skin. It feels like the 80s have kind of mm. found found their groove, you know, and things mm. haven't started going wrong yet. Mm. It's, it's definitely not the Aventies. We're definitely in the 80s now. And oh, we're in the 80s now. <laughs> in fact, you probably got the stats at your fingertips out. How often have we... Revisited 1983 so far on chart music. Uh, twice before. Only the, twice. The Christmas episode yeah. mm-hmm. and the one with Long Hot Weller in it. I guess mm-hmm. I'm conflating it with 82 a little mm. bit, but this kind of era does feel like there's a certain familiarity and comfort in going back there. It's a bit like going to visit a favourite cousin or a beloved aunt. Yes. Um, there's there's that thing, you know, you don't live there, but when you when you get there, you think, I know my way around. Yes. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. happy here. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very much in sort of my, my comfort zone, in a comf- comfortable element in 83. Mm. There's nothing about it that sort of makes me feel uneasy. I, I know the year inside out. I know how it works. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I watched this for the first time after 38 years, I, I can't deny I was hardly fisting it all the way through. <laughs> almost all the way through, anyway. Um, because it was just like, number one, oh, fucking hell, there's lots to talk about in this episode. You know, I have my chart music head on, obviously. Mm. But the other part of me was just going, fucking yes! Do you remember watching it at the time, this episode? I was like Beavis and Butthead, yes! Because yeah. I, I actually do recall watching this episode at the time, which isn't always the case with these, but I do remember this one. It really put me yeah. in a time and place watching this episode. And, and yeah. you know, it, it got me thinking, is there such a thing somewhere out there as the perfect Top of the Pops episode. Because, I mean, let me say right now, this one isn't. There's one song in particular that would have enraged the pop crazed youngsters of the time. But, you know, this one comes very, very close to ringing all the bells for me. It does. But, you know, as ever, I mean, it's a good episode. But, of course, the inevitable habit is to look at the chart and what could have been on. Yeah. And it could have even been improved. The bully factor, if you will. (laughs) <laughs> is what you could have won. 
But of course, the question is, is a perfect episode of Top of the Pops one where you like everything on it? Or is part of the essential nature of Top of the Pops that there is at least one tune that gives you a chance to flex your hatred? A little bit of hate watch, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think to me, the perfect Top of the Pops combines the two, perhaps, yes. rather than it just being a kind of a load of great records. But as ever, you look at the chart and you look at the episode and there's, there's plenty in the chart that you just think, oh, that would have been fucking amazing. Yes. And just on the outskirts of the top 40 as well, there's a lot of fucking... Yeah, there's stuff right waiting to enter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had a little look at that. There's some great stuff. There. Yeah. I mean, there's an example on this episode of a, of a single that I fucking hated, but a performance I loved then and even more so now. Hmm. But, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get stuck in. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello there. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Quickly, quickly, we haven't got long. Please listen to the all-new Angela Sandbelly podcast. It's a funny one. Oh, my God, it's hilarious. There's so much muck in it. In the news, depending on who you talk to, the police or the organisers, between 40,000 and 70,000 people attempt to form a human chain around the Greenham Common Air Base. An Irish radio station received an anonymous phone call from someone with a middle-class English accent claiming that if a 1.5 million ransom wasn't paid by the next morning, the head of Shergar, the 1981 derby winner who had been kidnapped two months ago, would be left at the Phoenix Park race course in Dublin. The National Union of Teachers Conference in Jersey is dominated by a move by the Gay Teachers Group and the Socialist Alliance of Teachers to stock books on homosexuality in school libraries and put over the message that homosexuality is normal. NUT General Secretary Fred Jarvis says they would support any of their members if they were prejudiced against due to their sexual orientation, while pointing out that the union wouldn't legally support gay members if they were arrested in Jersey, where homosexuality is still illegal and would be until 1990. What a fucking place to hold the conference. 
It's mad, that. £7 million in banknotes have been stolen from a security company in Shoreditch after a raid involving Ronnie Knight, who is currently Mr Barbara Windsor. He's eventually jailed for seven years for his involvement in 1995. While the argument over shirt advertising in televised football games drags on, a video company called Telejector has offered the Football League £8 million for the right to show live games in pubs on Monday nights, leading MPs to demand that the government lean on the BBC and ITV to end their shirt ad ban. TVAM, which is only drawing 400,000 viewers compared to BBC Breakfast Time's 1.8 million, have announced David Frost's replacement as the host of Good Morning Britain. It's their sports correspondent, Nick Owen, who is relocating permanently to Camden Lock from Central East Midlands and will soon drag his co-host Anne Diamond with him. Elton John, who has recently announced that he hopes to withdraw from his music career and become a film actor, has been photographed stripping down to his pants in a party in Tunisia. One onlooker said it was very artistic. He had great style. Everyone enjoyed it. (laughs) But the big news this week is that the Style Council were caught in the act setting up their gear for an impromptu gig outside the Berlin Wall and told to get back in the van by West German border guards. They went on to be denied entry into East Berlin where they were due to play for East German punks. The wall, sadly, did not come tumbling down. (laughs) Oh, Paul... I love them for their kind of engagement with the communist world, the Style Council. They were really yes. into it, weren't they? They went over yeah. to Poland, didn't they, uh, later on, to record the yes. video, Four Walls Come Tumbling Down. And, you know, they, they really wanted to sort of dialogue with the Eastern Bloc, and I really, really appreciated that. Where all the kids are going, this isn't Elton John, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> They're going, play going underground, play eating rifles. <laughs> <laughs> About that Shergar story, right? Have you seen what's happened? This is one of the maddest <laughs> things I've ever seen. There's, uh-huh. there's a documentary, a radio documentary on the BBC about the whole Shergar kidnapping disappearance yeah. made by, and this sounds like I'm making it up, made by Vanilla Ice. No, fuck off. <laughs> I've heard that as well, but I thought it was a joke. Is that, that, is that really true? No, it's not a joke. It's real. Yeah, it sounds like one of those Alan Partridge monkey tennis kind of things, doesn't it? It's like, you know, inner city sumo with Chaz and Dave or youth hostling with Chris Eubank. But it really is <laughs> yeah. the Shergar the story by, what's his name, Robert Van Winkle. Yes. But no, but he's, he's trading as vanilla ice. Um, yeah, it's just one of the maddest things I've ever heard. But yeah, apparently he's really obsessed with that story and wanted to make a pod about it and he has i can't report whether it's any good or not but it's real (laughs) on the cover of melody maker this week fish (laughs) on the cover of smash hits claire grogan the number one lp in the uk at the moment is the final cut by pink floyd and over in america the number one single is billy jean by michael jackson and the number one lp of course thriller by michael jackson so, boys, what were we doing in April of 1983? Well, I was getting sort of, well, I would have been about two-thirds through my, my first year at senior school. Mm. So, you know, I was just sort of 
becoming acquainted with the strange rubric of demented rules and sadism and, and general squalidness that went on at my school and getting used to the daft rituals that my school had um, as a school that was mm-hmm. aspiring to look like a public school in a way we had houses we had house assemblies. I mean, what's the fucking point of those? School assemblies no. for the whole school. And also year assemblies for just us as first years. And by the way, if anyone is confused about the year system of schools at the moment, you know, when a kid says they're in yeah. year 10, what yeah. does that mean? Me. Um, yeah, no fucking idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't got a fucking clue either, and I've been teaching it, yeah. you know. And I don't know what the new GCSE grades mean either, by the way. But... Um, you know, the thing is, as, as first years, we were encouraged to put on assemblies, right, for other first year forms. Right. So I remember in 83, oh, such a precocious little cunt. I, I wrote plays. Um, I was a playwright in wow. 1983. I wrote two plays that got performed because uh, I was a wannabe little writer. One was a dramatic reenactment of the royal wedding scene from Adrian Mole. Ooh. Um, yeah, and I played Burt Baxter, as I recall. <laughs> Don't really remember much else about that. The one I really want to remember, um, which I wish I could remember more about, was that I wrote a contemporary updating of the Jesus story, replete with an electric chair instead of crucifixion. <laughs> and um, we did this in front of the first years. And I remember it being a bit demented and being quite rushed in a sense. And just, a lot of people just didn't know what the fuck was going on in it. Um, but Christ, I wish I remembered more about this. Um, so if anyone went to King Henry VIII in, about, in, in Coventry in about 1982... Uh, 83 and remembers that play please get in touch i want to i want to remember more about it i don't know why i wrote it i don't know why i put him in an electric chair um there was an interrogation scene as well as i recall (laughs) but yeah i was a horribly precocious fuck but yeah finding ways to basically you wrote the mercy seat by nick cave about (laughs) three years ahead of time (laughs) yeah man I was really hoping you were going to say that you've got an old reel-to-reel audio tape. No. Oh. No, God, I wish I did. I mean, that was what was so delightful um, after the last chart music that somebody on Twitter, I think, said to Al yes. that um, that horrible known story that I remembered reading, they'd, they'd, they'd got a tape of it. They'd kind of done a little play of it themselves. Oh, my God. But this is, yes. this is what happens with time on your hands and boredom and no internet, obviously. You know, you, 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 I mean, I, I was always into writing, even as a very little kid. Um, but I had progressed on by this point, yeah, from just writing disgusting shit to writing meaningful shit, like um, <laughs> a contemporary retelling of the Jesus myth. Amazing. Oh, man, why didn't you get him floating around in a world of piss and shit and spunk? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I should have accepted my Hindu disgraceful hellish roots. Yeah, you should have told that story, Neil. You could have educated the youth. I know, I think it was around Easter or something like that. Um, and th- th- they just started lumbering me with this shit because I was willing to do it. Um, I wasn't a director or anything. Oh, man, if you'd have done a play like that and said, yeah, you think your religion's mad, <laughs> fucking get a load of this, you- you'd have brought the Cretes together. I would have. Just a young man trying to make a name for himself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, a horribly precocious little cunt at that age. But finding ways to enjoy myself, you know, rather than things that were handed down to me, as it were, you know, yeah. or... or doing what people wanted me to do. I was I was digging into writing a little bit. So I have fond memories of this time. Simon. Yeah, I was 15, jailbait, um, still um, <laughs> uh, living in um, in Barry, Doctown in South Wales, and uh, 
Um, at that kind of phase where you're too old for toys, but too young for the pub, and mm. like no interest from girls, so you just you've really got you just sort of like you're, you're full of all kinds of energy, whether sexual or aggressive, and you just got got no outlet for any of it, and mm. you're just sort of bristling yeah. with you're crackling with all kinds of emotions that you don't know what to do with. But um, talking of being like too old for toys, I did still have Sabutio, but um, apart yes. from that, right, um, there was this really kind of watershed moment where. Me and my mate, Andrew, who lived next door, who was a metler that I think I've spoken about in previous episodes, yeah. um, he had an air rifle, right? And owning an air... Of course Yeah, because he he's into metal. If you're into metal, I think having an air rifle is a very yeah, metal yeah. kind of toy to have. <laughs> yeah, <Toy. completely>. <laughs> <laughs> An air rifle is not a toy, listeners. Um, but yeah, what we did was uh, there was a, a basement underneath his house that was just kind of a storage space full of dried up bags of concrete and stuff like that that his dad had put mm. there. So what we did was we got all our old toys, like action men and other action figures like, you know, Star Trek and Six Million Dollar uh-huh. Man and all that stuff. And we lined them all up, um, kind of... We, <laughs> Which would be worth hundreds of pounds Exactly. Today, don't listeners. don't think I've, I haven't thought of this many, many times, over those, <laughs> especially when eBay launched. So we, we kind of um, gave them all weapons and posed them behind... <laughs> bricks and stuff in kind of action poses and then from about you know 10 feet away just blew the shit out of them with the air rifle <laughs> just like, basically executed them it was it was a massacre yeah. um it was it was like it was like some kind of american high school massacre i think sadly you know? <laughs> yeah so um the silicon chip inside his head got switched <laughs> to overload exactly so that that was kind of the symbolic end of childhood um and um yeah i was i was kind of in a gang, um, not not in the kind of uh, modern sense of postcode wars, but in that sort of slightly <laughs> pathetic, feckless way of just a bunch of ne'er-do-wells just sitting around on a wooden park bench looking out over the docks, which were still the docks in those days and had not yet been gentrified into sort of uh, yuppie marina apartments and um, mm. doing kind of just just tagging ele- electricity substations with a marker pen and all that kind of business. Um, <laughs> Danger of death, uh, yes. keep out, that's us. Jimmy! <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know how in every gang there's one who's kind of the whipping boy, um, who's mm, not yeah. not particularly hard, but they, they let him kind of join in and hang around with him. Well, that was me. I was kind yeah. of like, oh, I was man. kind of whatever the opposite of an alpha male is in that gang. Um I was the one, you know, if, if anyone's going to have the piss taken out of them or have a prank put, you know, played on them, mm-hmm. that was usually me. Um, so th- th- these are the same people. Oh, they're usually the first one in the gang to well, die as well, yeah. aren't they? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I've, I've spoken before about um, the, the time that um, we petrol bombed a church. Well, the thing is, I was never the instigator. That that wasn't me, you know. I was never the instigator. It was, so the two core members of this gang were these these kids called Screwy and Pete, right? And um, right. it was Pete's house. Pete's dad who had the the um, the, the speedboat fuel. You know, Pete's the hard one because he hasn't got a nickname. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. No one dares. When I look back, I've got an enormous amount of respect for this guy. That I never got to know him that well. We sort of lost touch. I wonder, I wonder if he's still out there and what he's up to. But he was a very early kind of animal rights type right. and he he once put a brick right. through a butcher's window all this kind of stuff and uh, <laughs> you know I, yeah I was quite quite in awe of him in a way he was quite quiet but yeah it was his dad who had the um the petrol for the Molotov cocktails and all of that um so there was this one night 
that with with these with Screwy and Pete and and um, a couple of others, we uh, we snuck out of our houses at midnight without telling our parents um, and tried to not make the door make any noise and just mm. very very <laughs> quietly went to um, preordained meeting place, and we went this kind of rampage around the town, <laughs> and. Uh, it's really bad. I was always the voice of caution saying, uh, are you sure we should do this? But, you know, I, st- I was still there. And um, so basically, it, it was nothing. When you look back, it was it was pretty harmless. The first thing I remember was going hedge hopping, like doing a sort of... Um, there was this one street, I think it's Windsor Road in Barry, where... Um, the terraced houses were set up in such a way that they all had quite high hedges between each garden and they all right. went down a sort of fairly gentle slope. So if you started at the top and just ran at it, you could sort of do a steeplechase. You sort of it's like it was like the Grand National. You just yeah. sort of jump over these hedges and the danger was, of course, you didn't know what was waiting for you on the other side. It, <laughs> uh, it could be, you know, it could be a nettle patch. It could be the sort of comedy thing of standing on a on a rake and it twats you in the face, you know, yeah. or anything like that. Um, so that that was the first bit where the only thing we were really harming was ourselves. Then I remember this bit where somebody had brought along um, a very fine pointed marker pen and started going Ooh. up to people's living room windows and drawing thin lines or cracks on the window to make oh, it look like the room Oh, that's cracked. evil. Yeah, it's quite quite inventive. It, that is yeah, evil. That's inventive. worse than a yeah. spunking cock yeah. when you window, that is. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember we went down to um, the nap in Barry. I hope there's a statute of limitations on this and I can't be put in prison for it now. Um, <laughs> but, um, basically, there were lovely ornamental flower beds there and like complete arseholes, we ran around kicking all the flowers over. Oh, no, Simon, it's, I can't approve but of even, that. But even so, you know, I, I I probably was stood on the edge of it going, oh, I don't want to do that. Mm. Yeah, Pete, what about fucking flowers rights? <laughs> And I, I I remember standing around wondering what we could do next. And we were on this corner um, oh, of the no. causeway over to Barry Island. And there was a Butlins at Barry Island at that point. And somebody thought, somebody from our gang thought, let's go over and, and like meet some girls. There'll be girls staying in there. <laughs> I don't know how the hell we thought there were going to be girls knocking around on what was probably like a Tuesday night, uh, you know, well past midnight. But um, yeah, that was the plan. But at that moment, a police car came screeching around the corner oh, and no. picked Ooh. us up and took us in, right? Whoa. Didn't take us to the police station, but gave us all a severe talking to. And mm. what had happened was they couldn't prove that we'd done any of this vandalism around the town. They couldn't tie us to any of it. I'm sure they could if they fucking searched us for marker pens and all that. Instead... <laughs> yeah. um, Pre-DNA, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. The reason that they came looking for us, and I never lived this down, is that my mum heard the click of the door when I left the house. Oh, uh, she knew where her lad was tonight. Yeah, and she figured out that I wasn't in my room. And uh. she and she must have actually had to walk all the way down the hill to a phone box because we did have a phone. Mm. And she, oh. you know, to phone the police. And uh, yeah, the police came, got us, found us, picked us up and took us to our respective homes. And after that, whenever I met up with that little gang, they would taunt me by singing... <laughs> 
No More Heroes by The Stranglers, but with the words changed to No More Heroes Anymore, Pricey's mum phoned up the law. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's one of my memories of being 15. Oh, man. And, and sort of being on the edge of getting into trouble, really. Mm. And always always being the kind of wuss who was like, no, no, can't we just play football? Did you get a massive bollocking when you got yeah, home? Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. You're like Adrian Mole. Again, another Adrian Mole reference when he's uh, when he starts hanging around with Barry Kent and his gang. Yeah. And they spend their time throwing chips at each other in the shopping precinct. And he writes, I used to write about life. Now I'm living. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, round about this time, I have a sore heart and a, a sore forehead. I mean, I was full into the fucking style council. So, right about yeah, this time, yeah. I am absolutely incandescent with rage that Speak Like a Child has been stuck at number four for the third week running this week. <laughs> did my fucking head in. It's like, why didn't everyone buy it on the first week like I did? On the first fucking day like I did. Like they did with jam records back yes. in the day. Yeah. Mm. And this might have been the week that I decided to get Paul Weller's latest haircut. <laughs> I'd had massive success with the Steve Marriott Toblerone Cup the year before. (laughs) So when I saw he changed his look again, it's like, yeah, I'm rolling with it. Hmm. Now, I don't know where Paul Weller got his hair done, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't haircut, sir, in Bullwall, where I got mine. I blame myself for not doing the obvious thing and taking in a photo and pointing at it to the to the bloke in the white coat. Yeah. And I just said, no, just just off here, a bit off here at the sides and a bit just doing it off memory, basically. <laughs> and um when he'd finished, I looked at the fringe and I thought, uh, that fringe isn't right. It needs to be a bit more sort of rounded and up a little bit more. So I, I just drew a fucking arc across my forehead. Oh my and- God. Yeah, big mistake, because (laughs) if you remember, this was the time that the T-Fold adverts were out on the scientists with the massive foreheads, and uh, yeah, that that was me for for a while. One of the most traumatic moments in my time at secondary school, I think it's one stage below being debagged on the school field and being called Maggot Man, was walking in that Monday morning about five minutes late to registration, just opening the door and walking in, and just being hit by a wall of screaming and laughter and just abuse and uh yeah for the next month or so until it grew out um it it was open season on my forehead (laughs) i'd just be sitting there and some fucking fifth year youth had just walked past and just slapped me on the forehead talking about kind of um, fashion choices at that time this episode of top of the pops i really believe changed my dress sense specifically there there are a couple of things that happened in this episode that did change how i dressed because at this Mm. point i was still it was very much the the burgundy and gray era you know it was burgundy cardigans with a big y on it it was it was tight jeans it was um canvas baseball boots they weren't Converse Chuck Taylors, they were knockoff ones, but those ones that had like a rubber mm, disc on mm. the ankle bone, you know the ones. Yes. And yeah, I, I had I had the, the, the bad skin that I've talked about before because I thought the way to remedy it was with neat Dettol, not diluted. <laughs> and it was that it was that well, you know, I've I've talked about that before. But yeah, this episode of Top of the Pops did sort of make me um sort of change things up a little bit and um, I'm looking forward to telling you all about that. <laughs> the good news and there's quite a lot of good news round about this time, is I finally crossed the line and felt brave enough 
to start shopping at the record shop in town. Mm-hmm. And in Nottingham, that record shop was Selector Disc. Mm, great shop. Great shop. Which seemed fucking massive and intimidating at the time. It was just the place you walk past and you, you just think, no, I'm not old enough to go in there yet. <laughs> I might get cussed down or they might chuck me out. But no, me and my mate steeled ourselves and we went in. And I can still remember my first purchase from it. Would have been about the month before. Hmm. It was a Monsters t-shirt. <laughs> the one where they're the beat combo. You know that yeah, one? Yeah. And my mate, Daz Clark, he bought a set of badges with all five Doctor Who's. <laughs> oh yeah, selected this a big part of my life for many years afterwards. I mean, when I worked in Soho at the turn of the century, there was still... That selector disc on... Um, Berwick Street? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I felt homesick for Nottingham, which I did quite a lot mm. round about that time, I'd spend my dinner hour in selector disc and pretend I was in Nottingham because they had the same T-shirts hung up on the walls. They had the same labelling on the the record racks. And it was just like, oh, I'm in Nottingham. Everything's all right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were great yeah. for t-shirts. That London branch, I remember. Yes. Yeah. yeah, stuff you wouldn't see anywhere else. That you do have to hit a certain age, I think, um, before. Not that you necessarily feel comfortable in record shops, but record shops actually become these things where you realise, oh, actually, I can just stay in here. Yes, you know, for like forty minutes or yeah. an hour. You know, when I don't have to buy anything, I can just browse and fantasise. It's part of your education, isn't it? Yes. Like reading the small print on the back of sleeves and wondering who the hell these yeah. engineers or keyboardists or yeah. whatever yeah. might yeah. be. They let anyone into Selected Disc. <laughs> For years, Selected Disc had its own tramp. Oh, nice. There was this one bloke who was known as Mr. Pope. And he was this huge bloke with a massive white Santa beard. Right. And he'd just come in when it was raining and just sit up against one of the uh, record racks and fall asleep for about three hours. (laughs) Yeah, he fucking stank as well, man. There was like entire chunks of the alphabet that you just couldn't go and delve into. But he was—he became part of the furniture. Selected was brilliant. Yeah. When it shut down, that was the beginning of the end for Nottingham City Centre, I'd say. It's a sad thing. I mean, all the ones I remember from Cov, they're all gone now, of course. All of them. We used to have Virgin Shop, Spinner Disc where I saw the fantastic sight of a pigeon flying in, shitting behind the counter and flying straight out again in one fluid movement. Fantastic. Uh, way ahead records. There was some... No manners, but what a critic. No manners, yeah. but what a critic. So, must have been the same pigeon that shot in that Kings of Leon guy's mouth. But um, yeah, there were three or four. And Cov's not a big town, 300,000 people, but three or four really ace record shops all gone there. Yeah. I should give a shout out for this, um, this, this website that I discovered i say discovered because it seems to be semi-dormant but i think it's called british record shop archive.org somebody obviously with more time on their hands than uh, would be desirable um a couple of years ago obviously built this and it's kind of an open thing where you can just uh, join in and add a record shop from your local town and do a little of you know reminiscence thing about it and if you've got photos of it put photos in and Mm. just potentially it's such a great website it's still a bit half formed there are huge Mm. gaps in it um annoyingly some of the towns are placed in the wrong county um and all of that but it's just something that um you know anybody who's got fond memories of record shops go on there and like make it happen because it's it's potentially a really beautiful thing yeah i put uh, christopher's records from barry on there didn't have a photo of it, but just wrote down everything I could remember about that shot. Nice. Yeah. But even more importantly, this is the week that I purchased my very first gig ticket. Ooh. Trent Polly 
Friday, April the 29th, which would have been two days before my 15th birthday, uh-huh. to see people who are actually in this episode of Top of the Pops. Ooh. There's a teaser. Oh, my word. So, dear boys, I do believe it's time that we rip open a cardboard box or two and have a bit of a ruffle through our back catalogue of magazines and pull out an issue of the music press from this very week. And this time, I've gone for the enemy, April the 9th, 1983. Shall we? Oh, yes, please. On the cover, Tracy Young. In the news... The main news this week is David Bowie's summer tour and the location of his projected open-air gig, which was recently announced to mop up the overspill of ticket applications for his gigs at Wembley Arena and the Birmingham NEC. Harvey Goldsmith has been dispatched to source a location and has so far narrowed it down to Nebworth, Blackbush and the Milton Keynes Bowl. The latter venue would win out with not one but three gigs held over the first weekend in July. A spokesperson for Goldsmith claims that practically every band in the country has been asking to get on the bill with Ice House and The Beat getting picked out. That was uh, The Beat's final gig. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And I I think we've spoken before, that famous story about how their elderly saxophonist, well, I say elderly, he's probably about the age I am now. (laughs) You know, He was um, in his early 50s. Yeah, yeah. Saxa um, met <laughs> met David Bowie uh, when Bowie, I think wearing a white shirt and a black waistcoat, came into the Beats trailer and just said, you know, you okay, guys? Anything I can do for you? And Saxa sent him off to get some red stripes because yes. <laughs> he just thought he was just some kind of waiter, you know. But um, the thing with that gig is I, I interviewed um, Dave Wakeling from the Beat um, a little while ago for Record Collector. And uh, one story he told me that didn't make it into the, the finished piece. Bowie had offered them the American tour because uh, yeah. he really liked the beat. A lot of the band were into it, but but Wakeling was not feeling it. He just didn't want to go. And uh, he thought, right, I've got to do it. I've got to split the band. So what he did was, because oh. um, the, the gigs, as you say, were over a weekend. Um, in between, Wakeling went back, drafted his letter of resignation and posted it through the door of their record company office, GoFeet, as right. a management record company thing. And then the final, final gig went so well that he really regretted it. And he thought, <laughs> oh, no, I've got to unresign. So he went back, and I think it was like a Sunday night or something, and he thought, shit, if, when, when uh, you know, the, the, the PA opens the door on uh, Monday morning, they're going to find this mm. letter, and that's it, the, the game's up. So he went back there <laughs> at the dead of night, you know, one in the morning on Sunday night, and was sort of going through the letterbox with a stick, <laughs> trying to sort of grab trying to sort of shoo the letter back under the door so he could just tear it up and unresign but he couldn't do it so oh. it eventually just thought oh that's just fate that's fate telling me i've just got to accept it and quit the band you know oh Blimey. just a longer stick and the beat would have been with us yeah, yeah. Mad. <laughs> simon i'm guessing you were still massively into the beat at the time yeah oh yeah they were fantastic if you'd have known this was the last time you get the chance to see them you'd have been up for going wouldn't you I mean, I couldn't afford a trip to you know, Milton Keynes from Wales. But, yeah, it, it certainly would have been tugging at my heartstrings. It would have been kicking down the doors of my heart. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, no, I absolutely love them. And With a stick. This, <laughs> this, this would have been the time that they were basically touring their final album, Special Beat Service, which is, you know, if people ask, yeah. what do you think of the kind of um, underrated or forgotten masterpieces of the 80s? To me, that's one of them, because it did fuck all in the charts. 
They were pretty mm. much forgotten about. It did quite mm. well in America, actually, Special Beat Service. It was the one that yeah. belatedly sort of saw them take off a little bit um, over there. But, yeah, I, I completely loved, loved that album. It's one of those things that, because you're aware that nobody else is into it, and even your mates who were previously rude boys or whatever were not mm-hmm. into this, it just makes it even more special to you. You think, this is yeah. my album. So yeah. I would have dearly loved to see them play that set. And um, funnily enough, I think, the beat, Dave Wakely's version, of course, because Rankin Rogers sadly no longer with us. Um, I'm mm. playing Brighton soon, and it may be Ooh. my first gig back in the world when gigs start happening. Wow. Meanwhile, with a week to go before the release of the Let's Dance LP, EMI have launched a massive promotional campaign. As well as the usual shop window and music press ads, they're running adverts on Channel 4 and local radio, and even backlit adverts on the tube. You didn't see that? at all did you back then the only albums that got advertised on the telly were compilations as i recall yeah big on you know k-tail compilations and stuff yeah that's that's a crazy promotional push yeah i don't think bus shelters even where i came from had adverts on no. them just yet at this point yeah in other gig news the jacksons who have already cancelled plans to play in the uk earlier this year look set to play a string of gigs in london in september probably wembley arena the reason for the delay is that they're currently in the studio working on the LP Victory, which in itself is being delayed due to Michael working with Paul McCartney in the E.T. soundtrack, and they're currently working on the single State of Shock with Freddie Mercury, which falls right. through and results in Mick Jagger stepping into the breach. The dates don't come off due to infighting. State of Shock is a fucking tune. Yeah, yeah. and I, now I'm sort of imagining this counterfactual universe where it's Freddie Mercury on vocals. That could have been amazing. Mm. I don't think mm. it'd be as good as the Jagger version. Yeah, great single. I don't know, because, I mean, at the end, it does sound like Mick Jagger and Michael Jackson are having bum sex. <laughs> <laughs> the last five seconds. Which is, let's face it, what the world wanted to see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Crosby, Stills and Nash have announced plans to play their first dates in the UK since they played Wembley Stadium in 1974. Although they intend to headline a major open-air gig, they eventually settle for two shows at Wembley Arena and one at the NEC. And Channel 4 have announced a new chat show for young adults, Loose Talk, which begins transmission from next Monday at half past five. Naturally, it'll have guest performances from the likes of Sade, Grace Jones, Squeeze and Robert Wyatt. It is best known today as the programme that gave a break to Ian Hislop and Jonathan Ross, who worked on the show as a co-presenter and researcher, respectively. Christ, Ian Hislop appealing to young people. What the yes. fuck they think? In the interview section, David Durrell skulks about on the set of the Channel 4 show Switch to find out more about Respond, yes. Paul Weller's recently nude label. He begins with a sit-down with Weller in a nearby hotel, who tells him that he likes the idea of someone going into a record shop and automatically buying the latest Respond release, like people used to do with Motown and Stax. Still obsessed with the young idea, he says that he wants the music biz to get back to bands and audience being the same age again, and points out that he's younger than most of Kajagoogoo. I love that fact. That's a great fact. (laughs) 
24 at this time, isn't he? He was so fucking young when he was having all his number ones with a jam. It's just mind-boggling, mm. really. Yeah. He mm. also finds yeah. out that Tracy Young likes John McEnroe, Gary Kemp and Squirrels. She isn't very political. She's already argued with Weller about what she should look like. She worries about using him as a walking stick. And she's only had three fan letters so far. She is not the girl next door, contends Durrell, although she's maybe the girl in the window opposite, or maybe the girl about town that you've heard of. (laughs) And he spends five minutes with the questions, who talk about being called Puffs at school for buying sheet records and are enjoying having Uncle Paul for a boss. Response seemed pretty important at the time, didn't it, Simon? Yeah, I really bought into it, you know... um, I I suppose I was looking around for a label to believe in after the kind of demise of Two Tone, and it yes, seemed like a similar true. idea yeah. really that you've got this one band, the Style Council, who were in the kind of specials role of being at the centre of it, even though they weren't mm. themselves on Respond, but you know, um, and and Weller being the kind of Jerry Dammers figure, um, the kind of uh, Svengali behind it all. Yeah, I was really into the idea of socialism, uh, of mm. you know, sixty soul influenced modern pop being used as a Trojan horse for left-wing political ideas. Uh, and there's obviously loads of that about in the 80s, not just the Style Council, but people like the Kane Gang and Fine Young Cannibals and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And Respond um, just had so much promise at first. I really thought it was going to be a huge thing. But for some reason, yeah. it just... And possibly it's just purely down to the quality of the bands. It never really took off. I really liked the questions thought they were a great band and uh, i i got the um, i got the respond compilation album love the reason yes and uh, you know how on style council records they always had these kind of slightly embarrassing now passages <laughs> of of kind of beat prose on the back yes. written by the cappuccino mm. kid who was of course <laughs> paolo hewitt well on love the reason it's actually written by weller himself yes and um, i've got the lp here can i read it please right. It's, all right, this is uh, Weller's little explanation um, for the label under the headline, Ours is to reason why. Big 16 and straight out of school to clock <laughs> in at the DHSS and live the Teenarama myth on a street corner, chewing nails, gum and getting bored or hostile. If only those in command could see. People need pride, capital letters, not party <laughs> politics. But alas, their vision is warped, their minds hopelessly out of touch, and their lust is for power, not body heat. I'm glad I ain't 16. To be so young, so beautiful and so strong, and not to be heard is criminal. Give up? Bow down? Surrender? Never, should you say. (laughs) People get uncomfortable and start wriggling, apostrophe, in their seats when you talk about pop music having a consciousness or ideals. I can understand it, really. When I have to deal with the big boys in various big boys record companies, I'm subjected to words like markets, product, units, their own curious vernacular for records, yes, and people. They may have a point. You do have to sell records to carry on making them. Sick, isn't it? But there you go. Business is a polite word for dipping your hands in shit. shit. Or so I believe. (laughs) Anyway. It's all coming back to me now. If you believe in goodness, art, culture and life and are strong enough to have a smile and not a sneer, you must have old what's-his-name on your side right on. (laughs) Apart apart from the people's faces on this Respond long play, there are three new faces who have something to say and want to make music. 
that's the reason why these cats make music. <laughs> the, <laughs> the justification is purely subjective. We personally love the reason. Keep the faith, hope, and charity. Paul Weller. Oh. <laughs> P.S. Don't get my haircut from Haircut Sir in Bullwall. <laughs> but I think that would have fired me up at the time. Any kind of, you know, missive from the mod father, which I never called him. I hate myself for even bringing that up. But yeah, I, I, was, I was just, I was a Wellerist. Totally a Wellerist. Mm. Wonderfully idealistic sort of document that. And, and you know, the, the, obviously all these, a lot of artists who start labels, they want them to be like Motown. And what none of them have is the ruthlessness. Yeah. That's, that's the trouble, that they are a bit idealistic. You know, they need that Berry Gordy ruthlessness of telling artists what to do and artists obeying them. This kind of idyllic idea of, of a kind of shared experience of eventually, you know, labels to work and to last because Stax didn't last as long as it possibly could have because it was slightly more ill-disciplined than Motown. For these things to last, you've just got to be a ruthless bastard, haven't you? Um, Which I don't think Weller had in him. Yeah. The quality control on this album, it's not the greatest, to be honest. No. There's three tracks by The Questions, two by Tracy, one by Tracy and The Questions, Mm. um, two by A Craze, who were a kind of um, very bright soul pop a female-fronted group. They wrote Give It Some Emotion, didn't they? They did write Give It Some Emotion, which I thought was a cracking mm. single by Tracy. And uh, Big Sound Authority, yes. who ended up not being on Respond, but I really liked them. I thought Julie Hadwin was just a great vocalist, and I was just surprised she didn't go on to have a proper kind of career. Mm. And then there's these things, like this is guy called N.D. Moffat, who's sort of acoustic reggae in the vein of... Bob Marley singing um, Peace, Love and Harmony, and that's pretty awful. And there's one, um, the main TKO, Fickle Public Speaking, which is this kind of guy with an echo box. um, You know who that is, don't you? Yeah, I do. It's Vaughan Toulouse from Department S. Yeah, sort of um, declaiming over this um, fairly shit electro backbeat. And I don't think the label was ready to go. And I think Weller loved the idea of it. And there's some good stuff on there, but it sadly didn't live up to all that exciting prose on the record sleeve. Andrew Tyler is summoned to County Hall for an interview with the runner-up in last year's Most Wonderful Person in the Enemy Readers poll, Ken Livingston. Yes. Oh, different times. <laughs> he says that he agreed to the interview because he used to be a reader, gets into an argument over whether schools should be allowed to keep animals, claiming that when he was in a school group that kept amphibians, they would occasionally breed, which is a sign that they were happy in captivity. They bred in Auschwitz as well, counters Tyler. Fucking hell. So basically someone makes a Holocaust comparison at Ken Livingston. Uh, Yes. Tables turned um, a few years later, of course, more than once. (laughs) Afterwards, he discovers that Livingston worked for seven years as a vivisectionist at the Chester Beatty Cancer Research Labs. Wow. Fucking hell. That's a bit mental. Yes. Richard Cook drops in on Joan Armour Trading, who enjoyed being back on top of the pops with her recent hit, Drop the Pilot, although she wouldn't like to do it for every single, and she wouldn't ever again. Lloyd Bradley nips over to Wembley to meet East West, a multiracial group who won a contest on the Channel 4 show East and I to find the country's best indie pop group. That's indie without an E. Mm. and will be performing on the show tomorrow. 
They tell him that they formed at a local youth club, got their start by funking up the theme tunes of assorted Indian films, and are currently talking to CBS and Arista. Oh man, Eastern Eye. It does seem a bit mad now, thinking back to the 80s, how um, Asian people were given a programme every week. You know, like, yeah. It, it, in the, More than one. Yeah, it, it, so, yeah, but kind of in the same slot as the programme for, I don't know, deaf people. And things like that. It's yeah. weird. I mean, I remember with Eastern Eye and also with Network East later on in the 80s, um, my mum and dad sort of tuning in, not with excitement exactly, but just to see what, what it was like. You know, only to realise that 10 minutes in, it was the usual diet of what they thought Asian people wanted to hear about. Bollywood, mm. cooking, marriage <laughs> was all we were going to get. This group East West. Do you remember this group, Neil? I, I don't. I don't uh, remember them at all. Uh, I shouldn't moan, you know, that, that Eastern Eye existed and, and, and BBC had Asian shows as well. It's better than, you know, the sole Asian representation on telly being, I don't know, the Chinese detective and Jewel in the Crown or whatever. I mean, it's weird, that history, though, because, I mean, the BBC put on programmes for Asian immigrants in, like, the mid-60s. Nai Zindagi, Nai Jeevan. Yeah. Yeah. When I was about five, I used to sing that all the time. I thought it was the best theme tune on the telly. <laughs> I mean, because I think my dad, I remember my dad telling me that there was a show in the 60s, which the translation of its title was was kind of Make Yourself at Home. And it, yeah. was, it was genuinely a mix of kind of language lessons um, in everyday English and popular music from kind of Bollywood films and stuff, uh, sort of aiming to help Asians cope with everyday life over here. Yeah. Which, you know, there was a lot of immigration at that point, you know, and uh, such a show should have been watched by my mum and she maybe wouldn't have gone to Boots looking for a pair of shoes, you know. <laughs> but, you know... Um, Bless. Network East, I remember as well, late 80s. And all of the, all of the people who were on those shows, they're still with us, some of them, Krishnan Gurumurthy mm, and Sanjeev right. Kohli and people like that. I just wish I'd harvested a bit of the, the new Asian cool in the nineties, but yeah, never right. mind. <laughs> it's it's like I, I never got to be a professional Welshman. Yeah, I, I see other people doing it, and good luck to them. You know, some some very good friends of mine, but I just think if only my accent was a little bit stronger. Yeah. <laughs> and Gavin Martin swings by the rock garden to watch and then talk to the next big thing, Roman Holiday. He finds a group who pack all the spontaneity and exuberance that a lot of us have been missing and draws comparisons to Eddie and the Hot Rods when they first started, while lead singer Steve Lambert goes to great pains that he can't stand Glenn Miller and is more into the black, Dixie side of swing. <laughs> they're hit. Oh, they're, they were fucking awful. They're one hit, don't try to stop it. It seemed like one of those songs that the record company like released about three or four times. I might be misremembering, yes. but they were just desperate for it to be a hit, and you know, finally it crept in. But mm. uh, and then yeah. that was the end of them, wasn't it? But yeah, yeah, I, I remember um, one more hit. I think did, did they right? Yeah, stand by. Ah, uh, right, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. The singer guy, he's, he's a good-looking fella. I remember with very big eighties hair. But um, nice quiff. Yeah, but they were going for that sort of big band jive sound that seemed very London, very wag club, and mm. just a bit wank, to be honest. <laughs> 
single reviews. Well, in the chair this week is Charles Shaw Murray. Mm. And his single of the week, by default, according to the layout, is Cash Money by Prince Charles and the City Beat Band. Yes. This record does not lead off this column because it is incredible, but simply because it is the best of the few that isn't mediocre, says Murray. This record certainly doesn't mess about. Funk spelled F-O-N-K <laughs> and the band's too tight to mention. Do you know that track, Al? Yes. Really good. Um, I really like Prince Charles and the City Beat yeah. Band. Yeah, Partly because yeah, yeah. yes. of the name. When people say, what's your favourite band name of all time? I often say Prince Charles and the City Beat Band. I think just a great mm. combination of words. Mm. I yes. quite like long names for a band anyway, as long as they're not too comedic. So I I remember another name I used to like was the Revolutionary Army of the Infant Jesus. But that was a really good (laughs) name. But yeah, just Prince Charles and the City Beat Band. Just it's sort of so evocative. But yeah, um, Mm. they're they're from Boston, weren't they? And it's in a kind of um, I guess it's a combination of Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five, kind of early um, gritty rap, but also Mm. a bit of um, electro funk a la Zap and a, a bit of kind of African Bambata and a bit of Funkadelic and that kind of stuff going on in there. This guy, mm. his, it was his actual real name, Prince Charles or Charles Alexander. Yeah. And then he went on to fucking this mega producer for Notorious B.I.G. and Usher and Mary J. Blige yeah. and all kinds of people. But th- their gimmick, they had this um, instrument called a Lyricon, which was an mm. electric wind right. instrument. <laughs> and that's all over a lot of their records. I've got the album, it's called Stone Killers, that um, that this track, um, Cash Money, comes from. And um, again, it's, it's one of these things that they never had a hit in the UK. They were just one of these names you would see around occasionally. And mm. that, yeah, you'd see them on the tube yeah, quite yeah. a bit, wouldn't you? And, and stuff like that. And it would just make it all that more special to you that if you somehow managed to grab hold of one of their records, you'd think... None of my mates listen to this, but I'm going to mm, fucking yeah. learn to love it. I don't want to stick my neck out too far, but I think this might just be a hit, says Murray of Beat It by Michael Jackson. <laughs> this is a touchingly anti-macho song designed to set off the new, slightly more macho Jackson stance as revealed in recent videos and sleeves, further compounded by Big buffalo-eating power chords and a frisk-ess squibbling solo contributed by Eddie Van Halen. The chords are revolting, but the (laughs) solo's quite nice. People with extreme guitar aversion can pretend it's a synth. Talking of things Jacksonian, Murray gives grudging respect to Candy Girl by New Edition. In a bold move designed to give America its own musical youth capability strike force, new edition of Bubble to the Surface. A quintet of youth who evidently eat, sleep, drink and breathe old Jackson 5 records. They make a debut with a sound not a million miles away from ABC and should, if nothing else, give the repulsive mini-pops someone closer to their own age to imitate. But it's a coat down for Temptation by Heaven 17. The inability of the British Electric Foundation to do anything right apart from the first and third Heaven 17 singles is one of the most bewildering mysteries that a music-obsessed person with a ridiculous amount of time could get involved in studying. Those confident boardroom smiles must be congealing round the edges by now, as yet another indifferent single 
plops into the arena. Since one presumes that fascist Gruthang and penthouse and pavement were not flukes, the only answer can be that Ware and Marsh are keeping the perfect single up their sleeves and waiting for the ideal time to release it. That time is now, gentlemen. Delay no further. Fucking hell, mate. Oh my God. I mean, all the things that we said earlier on about journalistic subjectivity, mm. notwithstanding, mm. you know, because I am a radical fundamentalist believer in critical subjectivity and that there is no objective truth you've still got to look at that and think what the fuck how can anyone not like temptation by heaven 17 that yeah. just like baffles my brain and it is the perfect heaven 17 single it's yes. exactly what he said i mean it's interesting with charles Shaw murray because i remember him on that bowie doc when his review of low was read back to him yes where he completely slagged that album off um, and to be fair, he was slightly, he wasn't contrite as such, but he just kind of admitted I was, I don't know, yeah, I was being a bit of a twat that mm. week, but he's definitely got this badly wrong, hasn't he? The thing with uh, CSM is that his whole raison d'etre within the enemy was, in his words, to barbecue some dinosaurs. Yeah. And once you've painted yourself into that corner, you've just got to keep doing it, I suppose. Yeah. There's not one, but two singles by a flock of seagulls on the block this week. Their new release, Nightmares, and a re-release of their debut single, It's Not Me Talking, from their old label. Fans can be reassured that both singles sound very much alike and also very much like the stuff that crept out in between. This pompous drone rock always induces in me a desire for a walk or else a deep, refreshing slumber. Something alarming is happening to Cliff Richard's face, says Murray in his review of True Love Ways. It remains undeniable that those neat little features are beginning to look a trifle sunken. Neither his voice or his taste appear to have changed, though, which is why we find him strolling through a venerable Buddy Holly tune with the London Philharmonic Orchestra to accompany him. The result is a glutinous stodge. Murray proclaims the Mental Disorder EP by Disorder the worst punk record ever, states that Mark King sounds less like a pinball machine on overload than usual on the new Level 42 release Out of Sight, Out of Mind, and claims that Sexual Rapping, a hip-hop take on the Marvin Gaye song by T-Ski Valet, a former member of the Erotic Disco Brothers, is risible in the extreme and about as erotic as a bowl of six-week-old rice pudding with four fag ends and a bit of old chewing gum on the top. (laughs) The erotic disco brothers, come on. (laughs) In the LP review section, Pride of Place goes to Attitude, the third LP by Rip, Rig and Panic. And Neil Spencer still isn't sure where they're going, but is still enjoying the journey. It's a more complete, more defined, more thoughtful and more satisfying affair than either of its predecessors. Nana Cherry sings with a deftness and commitment that shows up the effort of most of the would-be chanteurs for the clumsy travesties they are. <laughs> Gabby Delgado is evidently the half of Deutsch Amerikanisch Freundschaft that fancied himself as a sex pot, says Gavin Martin in his review of Delgado's solo LP Mistress, which leaves him distinctly unmoist. 
Like DAF, mistress is sex between the lines, the sweat and the stains, not the good bits, not the parts worth celebrating. Barney Hoskins rounds up five import LPs by Johnny Taylor, ZZ Hill, Tyrone Davis, Sonny Charles and Tony Troutman and claims that, for male singers at least, Soul is finally stepping away from the wreckage of disco and has a future in the 80s. Here are five great black male voices who have broken free of corporate shackles and are pointing us away from the disco aftermath of Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie. And Cynthia Rose reckons that the kitchen tapes by the raincoats is dead good. Tony D lavishes praise on Let the Tribe Increase by Yeovil-based anarcho-punks The Mob <laughs> and Halfway Across the Rainbow by Liverpool duo Shiny Too Shiny is a promising debut, according to Kev Mack. Uh, all of us were ordinary compared to Cynthia Rose. She always stood at the back of the line, a smile beneath <laughs> her. <laughs> In the gig guy, well... David could have seen Joan Armatradian at Wembley Arena, Mud at the Golden Lion in Fulham, Screwdriver at the 100 Club, (laughs) The Old Sailor at the Dominion Theatre, The Kids from Fame at Wembley Arena, Dr John at the Half Moon in Putney, or nipped out to Hayes for the Billy Fury Memorial Concert featuring Joe Bran, Lynn Paul, Alvin Stardust, Helen Shapiro, Dave Berrer and Mike Reed. <laughs> but probably didn't. Taylor could have seen Spandau Ballet at Birmingham Odeon, Tears for Fears at the Odeon, or the Kids from Fame at the NEC. Oh dear. He well would have gone to Kids from Fame, I reckon. Mm. And out of those David ones, sorry, although Screwdriver would have caught him, raged him, I, I would have. Oh, what a shame David didn't go and see that Billy Fury Memorial concert. Yeah. <laughs> Neil could have seen Spandau Ballet at the Coventry Apollo, or Dean Friedman at Busters. Busters. Oh, choices, choices. <laughs> Mind-blowing decisions. <laughs> Sarah could have seen the exploited at the Palm Cove Club in Bradford, a flock of seagulls at Sheffield City Hall, the undertones at Holding Walls, Sisters of Mercy at Leeds Warehouse, or the James Last Orchestra at Sheffield City Hall. Al could have seen Twisted Sister at Rock City, Scylla Black at the Royal Concert Hall, or Forest at the Sutton in Ashfield Leisure Centre. And Simon could have seen Clanad at St David's Hall in Cardiff, Books Fizz at St David's Hall, or Spandau Ballet at St David's Hall. Oh, it's all going on, isn't it, Simon? In St David's you were Hall. You camped outside all week, you are. Yeah. It's a, I think that venue had only opened in 82, actually. It's, uh, we weren't spoiled for choice for gig venues down there. But it's, it's, a really, it's still open now. It's, it's a really nice theatre, yeah. um, really good acoustics and everything. And, and yeah, um, I was the age to be going to gigs there. I had seen Dexys there the previous <gasps> October. Good Lord. And uh, the following March, I would go and see Whitesnake there. Whoa. And then at some uh, unspecified time, um, not long after, Spear of Destiny and Shalimar. So, oh, yeah, you saw Shalimar? Yeah, well, I sort of did. It was the arse end of the first Shalimar. So it was mm. Howard Hewitt plus two ringers. Um, oh. I've actually seen... 
I've seen Howard Hewitt with Jeffrey Daniel and um, and and a fake Jodie Watley more recently, and that was much better yeah. back in the eighties. To be fair, so I I couldn't really afford gig tickets very often, but my dad had just got a job with CBC, uh, uh, the uh. local radio station, so there were there were uh, free tickets flying around occasionally. Ooh. So yeah. White Snake on their slide it in tour. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we, we, sp- we were speaking, thinking of metal things because I, I went to that gig with my mate Andrew, um, he of the air rifle. While we've been recording oh. this, I've just had a message from him. This, this is the, the, the universe uh, working. He, he just messaged me to say uh, he's ordered a flexi disc of Motorhead Train Kept a Rolling, which came free with Smash Hits because he remembers me having that flexi. And I've, I've reminded him about, about the, uh, the assassination of our toys. And yeah, he's, he is confirming it. And uh, he's saying, yeah, um, I was still finding their bodies in the basement a few years later. <laughs> amazing in the letters page well there's been some right bollocks in the letters page this week i can't be bothered to read out but the general theme is your writer doesn't like the music i like Uh, an old theme i see it's gotten to be that time again slag off a steve hillage album time (laughs) writes rog of argyle if he had listened to you lot, he would never have made an album after Fish Rising. And then where would we be, eh? Thank God Richard Cook and no doubt all at NME slammed Roger Waters the final cut. I would have been so upset if any of you have actually liked it, says Miss Ozzy Trier of Surrey. If I thought I had anything in common with any of you ageing posers pampering to the young, trendy readership, I'd commit suicide. Isn't that Pink Floyd's The Final Cut? The fuck's she going on about there? It's a, a Floyd album, The Final Cut. It's the one with Not Now John on it, and it's why uh, right. my friend James Ward always refers to Pink Floyd as the Not Now John hitmakers. <laughs> <laughs> How come the jam managed to monopolise the hearts and ears of your readers for four years when they are clearly an artless bunch of talentless sods who never smile? Asks S. Hampshire of Plymouth. Because the readership, openly encouraged by your contributors, identify so easily with their heroes. Yeah. Think about it, man. Food for thought, eh? (laughs) And John Connolly of New Barnet says, In Jesus' day, people were crucified for preaching to the ignorant. These days, they seem to work for music papers. (laughs) You you should have put that into your play, Neil. Definitely, definitely. All of these contributors revealing something that is still with us, isn't it? That, um, you know, I disagree with your music opinion, but I'm absolutely not angry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Who opened the letters that were sent to the music press? It would be whoever was editing the letters page that week. Right. I used to just get, when I did Backlash for Maker, yeah, you'd just get given a big black bin liner full of these things. And that'd be your job. Unopened. Unopened, yeah. Yeah. So they could have had razor blades in them and all sorts. Oh, potentially, yeah. Sometimes, like, somebody else would have opened one maybe from a previous week and they wanted it to be included in that following week's pile, in which case you'd be handed an open one already. But, yeah, mainly, yeah, they could have had anything in them. What's the worst thing you ever got inside a letter sent to Melody Maker? I got a death threat from C18, from Combat 18. But What? Fucking hell. That was... I mean, that wasn't to the letters page, that was to me. Fuck. Um, And it was just, you know, we've seen you come and go, blah, blah. 
your, your usual uh. stuff. So that was probably the worst, which I probably should have worried about more or told somebody about. Yeah. But I didn't. I didn't want to cause a fuss. So I didn't. Just chucked it. Canal. But, you know, it's to be expected, to be honest with you. If you weren't white and you stick your head above the parapet a little bit in a white space, if you like, which is basically what the music press was, you're probably going to get that. Mm. Deli Fideli, I remember telling me he used to get similar letters um, whenever his name appeared in print. I'm not saying the NF or anybody was being vigilant, you know, and checking and, and therefore firing off these missives, but it was to be expected, to be honest with you, especially especially in that period. Oh, I was expecting someone's knickers or something. Fuck. <laughs> Sorry, that's not a very amusing uh, response to your question, but yeah, uh, I, did get, I did get that kind of thing. Cunts. 48 pages, 35p. I never knew there was so much in it. <laughs> Yeah, enemies floundering around, isn't it? There's not a lot in this issue that's um, going to show up on top of the pops now or in the weeks to come, don't you think? Well, see, enemies' role at this time was... I mean, enemy itself was floundering around. In some ways, it was the golden age of enemy because um, as a sort of political voice, it was really important. But in terms of what Mm. music they were covering... It's interesting that there was a review of Rig and Panic in that, yeah. uh, because they are seen as being kind of totemic of this phase of enemy being really distant from what was going on pop-wise and going into mm. quite esoteric territory. Yeah. Willfully. Essentially what happened was, when Smash Hits came on the scene, enemy had a choice to make. Um, what, you know, would it try and fight Smash Hits on its own, on sort of, you know, pop turf? Or, or would it just sort of, all right, say Smash mm. Hits can have that, you can have pop and we'll go off into the kind of uh, indie fringes. And that's what they did. And um, it completely kind of mm. backfired. And Smash Hits, this is, I, I, I love this, Smash Hits office was on Carnaby Street, directly opposite NME, but like mm. half a floor above, so that from the Smash Hits office, they were literally looking down on NME, looking, looking across <laughs> the street into their office, almost sort of taunting them. And I was very, very much a Smash Hits kid at this point. My dad, <laughs> yes. my dad got NME, yeah. and I'd sort of pick it up and look at it at his house, but it was all a bit, still a bit sort of daunting and off-putting for me. Mm. God, the idea of thinking of the enemy is your dad's pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just interesting, the news section, the stories you read out. New pop really hasn't won, has it? I mean, the stories about the dinosaurs, Bowie, Jacksons, Crosby, Stills and Nash in the news section. You know, not too much has actually been swept away by what's happened in 81 and 82. These people are still there. But they'll meet the new pop halfway with Weller, with the Style Council, and respond and all that, because at least that's got some kind of political heft Mm -hmm. to it as far as they're concerned. Mm. So what else was on telly this week? Well, BBC One starts the day at 6.30am with the still new breakfast time, followed by the Wombles, Jack and Aura, Champion the Wonder Horse, Why Don't You, Highland Pony Trail, and the 1977 Australian film Blue Fire Lady, about a girl who forms a bond with a Mardi horse and becomes a show-jumping champion. After news afternoon, regional news in your area and Pebble Mill at one, it's gran. And then stop, go, and then everybody's doing it. A collection of home movies from the 20s and 30s, presumably of stockbrokers doing the Charleston on a window ledge before throwing themselves off. (laughs) 
At 20 past two, we're whipped over to Aintree for the first day of the Grand National Killer Horse Festival. <laughs> then it's regional news in your area, play school, the new adventures of Mighty Mouse, a repeat of the first episode of Hydair again, John Craven's news round, and then Simon Groom spends a day with the household cavalry and gives Sefton, the horse that survived the Hyde Park bomb, a sugar lump or something. <laughs> Then it's the news, regional news in your area, nationwide, and they've just finished you-know-what. BBC Two gets the party started at five past six with a two-hour, five-minute blast of red-hot open university action (laughs) and then closes down for nearly three hours, coming back hard with play school and then closes down for over four and a half hours until it picks up the racing from Aintree. Then it shuts down for another 45 minutes, eventually returning with a documentary about the North Westminster Community School and the brothers Lionheart. Tucker tries to sort Alan out with a bird in episode 5 of the first series of Tucker's Luck. Then the documentary series Just Another Day hangs about Waterloo Station. And they're currently 30 minutes into A Dream of Alice, a celebration of the 150th anniversary of the birth of Lewis Carroll. ITV begins with Daybreak the TVAM news update with Robert Key, then it's Good Morning Britain, then a close down from 9.15 to 9.30. Probably a bit of jingly music and a picture of a transmitter on a hill somewhere. (laughs) Then it's Sesame Street, Science International, the computer show database, then a chance to meet Great Chief Anger Gaga Tongalo II of Zaire in Lost Kingdoms. After film fun, it's Gammon and Spinach, Get Up and Go, The Sullivans, News at One, Regional News in Your Area, Crown Court, Afternoon Plus, Plays for Pleasure, and a repeat of Survival. After another repeat of Gammon and Spinach, it's a Foghorn Leghorn cartoon, and then First Post, Points of View for Kids, followed by Rowan's Report, a new series about children who are already far more successful than you. This week, it's a 13-year-old model. Then Mac finds a new goalie in Murphy's Mob, and Arnold gets stage fright in different strokes. After the news at 5.45, it's regional news in your area, crossroads, and they're halfway through Michael Knight and his talking car, who are hunting a chauffeur who is trying to sabotage a political summit in Knight Rider. Channel 4, on the other hand, can't be asked to do anything until 5 to 3 when it runs the 1946 film Two Sisters from Boston, followed by Tennis That Counts, where a coach takes some of his students to Spain to prepare them for a career of losing to foreigners. (laughs) After Countdown, it's Get Smart, and then a masterclass from dancer Hanny Coles in Masters of Tap, and they're currently halfway through Channel 4 News. Oh, chaps, precious memories seeping through the ages just like wine. What's jumping out at you there? That um, that show, Rowan's Report, I'd never heard of it. Maybe it wasn't shown mm. in our ITV area <laughs> where I'm from. Um, no. So I looked into it, and, and um, it's just something where they interview 
um, assorted young people, teenagers who were doing well at something. Um, later mm. on, they did Annabella Lewin from Bow Wow Wow. But um, right. I, I had a look at the list of other people who were on there, and uh, there was there was a kid who uh, was one of the youngest stock market investors. And Fuck. this is the the cold um, hand of history here. Can you can you guess who maybe that was? A teenager oh. at the time. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, imagine being introduced to that cunt that early. I know. And I imagine at the time it was probably done in a spirit of novelty of, you know, whenever they used to have the child who, who is now known as uh, Lauren Harris yeah. talking about um, antiques. And it was this novelty. Oh, look, this this child yeah. who knows about grown-up stuff. And probably mm. at the time it all seemed very instant. Oh, look at this slightly nerdy 13 year old who's buying and selling stocks and shares but yeah little do we know that they're going to be very much part of the project to rip up Britain as we know it and turn us into um, a casino capitalist hellhole but come on man he was investing all his money off his paper round and that yeah right pulled himself up by his bootstraps nothing to do with his fucking dad (laughs) (laughs) the other thing that jumped out at me um, I don't know if if you guys were as much into it as I was but Tucker's luck man Tucker's luck oh gorgeous fucking hell I love that I remember the anticipation for it just hearing that this series was going to happen and also, I mean, crucially, hearing that characters from Grange Hill were going to be in it beyond Tucker. Yeah, so for people who don't know, it's Tucker Jenkins, played by Todd Carty, later of EastEnders, of course. Tucker Jenkins was kind of roguish, um, good lad from uh, Grange Hill. And uh, so it's him and his mate, Alan, and, and their, their adventures having left school. And to me, it, it sort of hit me in, in, in two ways. First of all, at the time, it just seemed so true to... The kind of life I imagined I was living, which was, you know, mm. a life mm. of broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the stairs, you know, they just don't care. You know, just that kind of gritty urban thing. Everywhere yeah. you go, everything you see. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, basically um, running scared of skinheads. Because, um, yeah, the, mm. the antagonists the in, in Grange. Yeah, it's, it's Passmore and his mate Brains. Mm. Um, Passmore in a trilby and Brains in his bad manners vest, who are the antagonists <laughs> in, in Tucker's Luck. And uh, there's, there's a, a famous confrontation in a skate park in which a ghetto blaster gets smashed and Tucker's lip gets cut and it's all very dramatic. Yeah. It just seemed like a sort of heightened version of the world in which I thought I was living, when really, as bad as yeah. it got, was drawing my own little tag on a park bench um and but i did have to run away from skinheads mind um when i I used to sort of go over to barry island the way to get there quickly was to cut through this cinder track through the um, steam locomotive graveyard and that's where the skinheads a la tucker's luck would be there sniffing glue Mm -hmm. and they didn't like me because i used to be a um, a rude boy but i'd kind of turned my back on it a bit and they used to so yeah yeah and i just learned to run very fast in my (laughs) in my paul weller-esque slip-on shoes (laughs) but yeah this episode of tucker's luck i looked it up this series when it was episode five called Bo Derrick. Um, the episode description is that Tommy believes Tucker should have a party to help Alan get his friend off of Susie. And then the following week, it's the morning after the party, mm. the house is a disaster, and there's an unknown guest. Boy. Can the boys clean the place up before Mrs. Jenkins gets home? Hello, French polishers. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like that, isn't it? It's like that advert, the Yellow Pages ad. But um, I vividly remember this episode, and I I, I did go through a, a, a deep dive rewatch phase uh, yes. of uh, 
looking at Tucker's luck on uh, on, mm. on YouTube. It's all it's all on YouTube. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I was going to pitch an article to the Quietus of some massive deep dive into Tucker's luck, but I never got around to it. But this episode of Tucker's luck, one thing I remember about it: the house party, the record they put on. Um, mm. when people arrive and it's a brilliant choice of record it's Love and Dancing by the League Unlimited Orchestra oh wow. yeah which is uh, it's the remix album of Dare by the Human League and it's a, just a brilliant record to put on at a party and I just remember thinking you know however uh, grim and shit everything's meant to be at least they had that but yeah. but yeah, watching it again, this is how it hit me the sort of second time around, watching Tucker's Luck now. It's such an amazing document of old Britain, of 1983 Britain, mm. because uh, even though um, Grange Hill was meant to be in the fictitious North London borough of Northam, most of Tucker's Luck is filmed kind of around Westbourne Park, Labrook Grove, kind of West London. Mm. And it's an area of London that hadn't really been gentrified. Um, mm. A lot of it ha- still hasn't really. And it's just this world of kind of backlit plastic shop signs and everything's covered in a bit of kind of um, carbon monoxide grit and it's a world of cafes with watered down ketchup and just mm. you know steamed up <laughs> windows and it's just uh, even the way that the British telecom phone booths look and it's just an incredible document to have of, yeah. of that world I think. The anticipation for it was enormous because of course yeah. You know, Alan and Benny and Tucker and all that, they'd left Grangeil. They, yeah. Grangeil used to do that thing where the kids left. And, you know, it yeah. stopped doing that. It wasn't after like, a while. please, sir. Yeah, yeah. No, but it stopped doing that. It kept people on for too long after a while. But, yeah. you know, and, and for any kid watching it, it was simultaneously like a, a good sort of extension of Grangeil, but also slightly, not scary as such, but it, it told you, you're going to have to do this one day. You're going to be out of school. Yeah. You know, you're going to have to. But not be a grown-up necessarily, but find your way, as it were. But well, yeah, it's it, a massive it was, thing, took us look. It was the era of, of mass unemployment, particularly among the yeah. youth, and it, the programme was grappling with that, this this idea yeah. of just these, these kids being basically thrown on the scrap heap and wondering what the fuck they're going to do, and yeah. ending mm. up just doing little kind of little jobs in some mate's auto repair shop and then getting sacked, and yeah, yeah all, all of that, it just seemed all very real and like quite chilling in a way, that this was, you know, being 15 years old myself, this was only just around the corner for me as well. Yeah. I mean, you've seen Going <laughs> Out, haven't you? I remember that, that was like, that was mm. shown really late at night, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Talking of the Weetabix, I can't believe I actually haven't dropped this yet. I went for a drink on my own one night in a pub in Nottingham, ended up at the bar chit-chatting to this bloke who claimed to be the illustrator for the Weetabix adverts. Wow. (laughs) And I was just pushing him for information and Mm -hmm. and trying to catch him out on the colour of brains as Hawaiian shirt in that advert where they went all American and that. And he said, oh, no, I wasn't involved in it by then. But at the end, the one thing that convinced me that he could have been the illustrator for the Weetabix Mm. is that just before he left, he picked up a full bottle of Beck's and smashed it into the face of the barman. Fucking hell. Who'd be getting on his tits all night. Ah, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking hell. No, he legged it out because he knew what was good for him. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, Pop Craze Youngsters, I do believe that the table's been laid for this episode of Top of the Pops. Oh, I'm rubbing my thighs in anticipation of this one. It's going to be a fucking corking episode, this. So, we'll leave it till tomorrow and I'll say thank you very much, Neil Kulkarne. No worries, Al. God bless you, Simon Price. God bless you too. My name's Al Needham. Stay pop crazed. (laughs) 
Sharp music. Hello, I'm Alex Lynch, and this is Out of Character, a podcast about sketch and character comedy. Oh, that, you're not a wizard. No, so I am. I've got a beard. Oh, yeah, he's right. He does have a beard, actually. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy. And I sort of couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, I couldn't believe anything could be that good. That moment of uh, self-hatred uh, is is your rehearsal. That's what that's, you've been doing it your whole life. Find out what made them venture into it. Yeah, I mean, just getting that DVD and then binging through those was just some of the most profound comedy joy of my life. I'd spent my whole childhood being, I'll be honest, a dick. Talk about their characters. And it just made me really want to, like, make her move with her pelvis, basically. Maybe meet some of their characters. Um, because she's got, she's actually only got one leg. And that's why she's been hopping. <laughs> I don't know what to say. She's quite terrifying. That is correct. <laughs> and generally, just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. It's all an act, Alex. I'm horrible. I'm an horrible person. <laughs> that's so good. Recorded entirely in the first lockdown. The most joyous bit of idiocy. <laughs> uh, and, and Twitter was full of just people going, that's awful or that's brilliant. That's Out of Character, with me, Alex Lynch. Hello, I'm a spider. Sounds nuts, which it was. Coming soon, wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.